and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes. In this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Sarah Cassidy, author of Nevers. Nevers is a finalist for the Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. Now, Sarah is the author of 16 children's books. Her titles for young readers have earned a number of award nominations, including three Junior Library Guild selections, the Chocolate Lily Award, the Manitoba Young Readers' Choice Award, and many more. But Sarah doesn't just write for kids. Her poems and short stories have appeared in the Malahat Review, Geist, Fiddlehead, and more. Sarah's book, Nevers, takes us to France in the time following the French Revolution. The main character is a confident and spirited girl named Odette. Through the story, we meet a string of engaging characters from Niçoise, a neighbor in their new community, and a donkey that speaks Latin. Sarah mixes fantasy with reality in a way that kind of reminded me of a modern take of Beauty and the Beast. Sarah starts our conversation with a reading from her book. Odette, 14 years old, is at the center of the novel set in Burgundy in 1799. Her mother, Annaline, beautiful, hapless, has a problem inadvertently killing off husbands and others. In this scene, Odette, who is so responsible, has been key in organizing a fundraising party for Annaline's current archaeologist husband um, for his project, Restoring a Castle Wall. So the event had been planned for a full moon. And it had been Annaline's vision. But Odette, of course, had kept it all afloat delivering the invitations, ordering the food, even swinging a scythe at dawn to clear a field for dancing. And yes, a full moon, when the ruins would be bathed in moonlight, a phrase Annaline loved to repeat. It had begun gloriously, silver trays polished like mirrors, glistening oysters on thin slices of baguette, tall glasses of fizzing champagne, Men in tuxedos, their beards trim, women in gowns and long necklaces. The crowning glory of the ruins was the remaining side of the castle keep. It towered over the local countryside, its ghostly remnant height enthralling. It was a marvel, nearly miraculous, that the single wall stood, unsupported, stone on top of stone on top of stone. Marcel's first planned project was to bolster it, Indeed, the evening would raise the funds to do so. The musicians musicians were singing à la Clairefontaine. In the clear fountain, as I was strolling by, I found the water lovely that I bathed there. Long have I loved you, never will I forget you. When they finished, the crowd cheered, then quieted, attentive for the next musical offering. And it was in that moment of expectant silence, like a crash, like the worst thunder, like a stampede of a hundred horses, like a mountain falling, filled the air. Guests screamed, birds screeched, dust billowed thick as smoke. The great castle wall of Sigi Le Chatel had fallen. The air throbbed, 
swirling where it had not for centuries. Marcel ran toward the rubble and fell to his knees, moaning. Party guests rushed to comfort him. Others clambered over the rocks, looking for casualties. In the midst of the chaos, a length of red silk sailed over the debris. Marcel caught it and clutched it to his chest, launching into louder paroxysms of unhappiness. When Odette asked to see her mother's scarf, Marcel dabbed his eyes with it, then handed her the moist cloth. Odette recognized immediately that what her mother's seventh husband took as a symbol of Annaline's demise was in fact a message for her, the knot tied in it after the wall fell and just before her mother threw it. As the party goers scrambled over the fallen rocks, calling her mother's name into the dark openings, Odette sneaked toward the bushes at the edges of the ruins. Odette was sure her mother would not have perished in such an outrageous accident. Outrageous accidents were how her mother lived. No, Odette had never doubted that Annaline would die at the end of a boring day spent playing shuffleboard and eating mashed prunes. There would be no mayhem, no murder, no mystery, just a slowing of heartbeats, a little more silence between each breath, a little less air, and a little more space. But the people in their evening gowns, swinging lanterns over the rubble and crying, Annaline, Annaline, were fooled. For in their tidy, sleepy lives, walls did not fall. The world did not perpetually shift sideways, did not zig or zag. This was Odette's life. Turmoil was always on the horizon when it wasn't under her feet. Odette put the scarf to her nose and smelled the Egyptian oil that her mother rubbed into her neck each morning as she murmured, my neck will not collapse, my neck will not collapse, my neck is not the Roman Empire. Sometimes the smell comforted Odette, but now it angered her. A dove cooed in the bushes, sounding much like the one she and her mother and Marcel had heard that morning while eating breakfast. Only this dove was articulate. Coo-coo, Odette, it said. Coo-coo coming, Odette grunted in reply. Odette pointed across the heap of ancient stones and called out to the thwarted revelers, legs, someone has been crushed. It was true. As she was clambering over the rocks, she had come upon a pair of lifeless trousered legs sticking out from the wreckage. The men and women in fancy clothes flocked across the rocks, and Odette backed into the woods until a bony hand clamped onto her shoulder. Time to change addresses, Annaline said. Through the dark night, Odette had led her mother across fields, over streams, and through forests. Annaline complaining incessantly, my feet are so sore. I didn't eat even one oyster. Why is the moon so faint? Stop, I am out of breath. But when they did stop, Odette felt the weight of the sky over her and the stars piercing its darkness like knife points, urging her to keep going and to never return. Thanks, Sarah. I wanted to start our conversation just by if you could share with, with me a little bit about how this book got started and where you drew inspiration for the book from. Well, I've been lucky enough to spend a fair bit of time in Burgundy, um, especially when my children were young. And um, 
one of the small towns we stayed in, there was a donkey um, that lived up the road and stood under a tree all day. And I could never figure out who, who this donkey belonged to, if anyone. And it was a perfectly um, peaceful beast. And uh, But then at night, at around two in the morning uh, or three, almost every night, this donkey would begin to pray very loudly. And this was a very small town. And I know many, many people were awakened by this donkey. It would have been impossible not to have been. So I asked my partner one night, once again awake, you know, what, what, does, what does he want? And my partner said to not be a donkey. <laughs> so that's kind of the moment that, um, that, that my curiosity got going about this donkey, because there is definitely a donkey at the center, uh, along with Odette, of this book. So um, there was that. And then I had traveled to Nevers, a town in Burgundy, which is a very, um, I found it very strange and captivating. And of course, the name of the town is also inspiring in its own ways. So uh, it was a magical day and I just wanted to capture some of um, that sense of the past you get in France as well, the sort of the streets are soaked in it. I think it's always really surprising to be somewhere where people are really truly living in houses that are 400 years old and going about their regular daily 21st century tasks. So I'm always interested in that too, that sense of the past that's always around us. It's interesting that you bring up the the past and then the like our 21st century lives because um, one character we meet in the book is um, Marie Claire, and uh, I I was fascinated by that character and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about her. Uh, she is yeah I mean how historically accurate is this book? I I, I did tons and tons and tons of research, but ultimately. Uh, I'm sure if somebody in the 1799 of Burgundian read it, they would certainly laugh, I mean, or wonder at it, or it would be, I think it would read as a kind of science fiction for them, really, set in their place. So Mary Claire is a midwife, um, you know, you read up on midwifery, and I did, I did, of course, I think you know from the book, reach into some 21st century sensibilities, and uh, transplanted them there in 1799 and in her case and not necessarily 21st century I mean humane sensibilities that you would hope are sort of timeless and in her case it was um, um, she's actually quite devout but it comes up a fair few times in the novel a slight cynicism about um, Catholicism and religion generally. And of course, it, the book is set immediately after um, the French Revolution. I mean, France is still sort of moving out of that time. And so there has been a lot of cynicism about the Catholic Church. Uh, it's fresh in people's minds, but this is a small town and those ideas didn't reach there. But anyway, back to uh, the midwife. Uh, she, in, in the course of the book, a baby is born who is, we used to call it intersex, but it has various genitals and she is full of acceptance and 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 advises the family acceptance and around this child and let the child decide how their life will take shape in reference to their own shape. So that may be what you're asking about. Um, I think yeah, she but she is devout. So would those two things go together? On the other hand, things like lore, um, like untying knots 
in a house where a baby is about to be born or putting wax in that that would be to sort of sympathetic magic you know to inspire a smooth delivery with sort of that metaphor or um, plugging up the locks with wax to keep the devil out those things were real those things were tasks someone would uh, undertake before the delivery of a child I I love the little bits that you included, like the lore that you just mentioned, but also um, stuff about like the panniers. I I had no idea that panniers were actually used to widen women's hips, and I you know I thought that was a really interesting detail. So and I, and I was curious, like how you navigated the like the bringing in of those those true and historical facts, the lore, the panniers, the stuff about the French Revolution, but also it had this very kind of fairy tale quality to it as well and how you kind of navigated the balance between those two I think that comes naturally unfortunately I think I moved through the world uh, in a bit of a dopey fuzz (laughs) but I'm very interested in politics and it's partly why I went into journalism was to get and studied journalism um, following a degree in English and philosophy but that was I wanted to, to have the ability to hang on to fact and to, uh, to understand what the what hard facts were um, and to even manipulate them. Um, I truly did study, well, also to be an activist at that time and to have a voice or to be able to speak out and publicize um, certain things in terms of social justice. But um, I also did turn to, journalism was also a way for me to tack down onto the world, to feel tacked down. So I do think that comes naturally to me. Um, yeah, this sort of dreamy, uh, metaphorizing quickly the the immediate realities. But I think we all are like that, really. I mean, we have to go about our day. And, you know, we've just heard, for example, you know, Trump is challenging the elections and we're horrified and mortified. And then we're filling a cup full of water, which was one of the most ancient practices and is beautiful. So how our lives are constantly moving through that strange doubleness of I guess quantifiable reality and and the more poetic yeah in your reading you you introduced two of the main characters Odette and Annaline and Odette's this very like she's at times the mom in their relationship it seems and uh I think often I thought that was an interesting dynamic but also it's the this like getting older thing is something that's so interesting for teens and young readers who might be picking up this book but also for parents too because kids want nothing more than just to be grown up already and parents are always kind of watching in awe as their kids are getting older um and i was i was just curious about their relationship and that whole idea and why you chose that kind of dynamic between them I'm, um, I think it's underrepresented. I think there are many, I've had many friends who were in a caretaking position with their parents, or at least were not taken care of particularly well by their parents. And, you know, that, that's missing from the storytelling. And you can't imagine how uh, confirming it would be for a kid. And I think it's illuminating. It feels so alone in that circumstance and yet it arises a lot so yeah and so Odette does have to get on with things and um, she has to get the necessities of life for her mother 
and 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 it's true that in this in the novel she starts to quietly question that and I think react against it because she meets um, her neighbor uh, and makes a new friend who kind of says you know chill a bit enjoy your life a bit and uh, at the same time um, maybe it all works together but Annalene is also starting to make very modest efforts at changing and becoming a little more connected and aware of Odette and her daughter. Um, it's funny because a few reviews have said it's a happy relationship between mother and daughter and it's almost as if people want that, but it's not. It's not a happy relationship. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt quite sad for her at parts, especially when she meets uh, Niswaz' her neighbor, and you re you really see that one of the things she has been neglect, like one thing that she hasn't gotten in her relationship and in her childhood is that belonging with her peers, and I thought that was something interesting as well. Yeah, she and Niswaz are both um, single children, and so they have that point of connection of not having siblings. Um, and that's why there was real effort made not to make turn that into a romantic relationship because it is more about having peers and um, being guided by peers and you can really see how um, as she gets to know him and she sees that they have things in common and how you know that seems so important to her to see like that she's not alone in the world that that belonging and, and community is there for her and Niswa accepts her as, her as she is, whereas her mother is often complaining or does, certainly doesn't see all that she does. So I think that's something too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think those belonging themes, it's always interesting because I think so often we write about belonging because it is something that's so important for us from such a young age. And, and uh, you really touch on that in the book too. Was that an intentional thing for you? Um, I, I, say, I, I would say absolutely, and I think that that book helped me belong. One of the reasons I started writing it was, I, I know it sounds very privileged, <laughs> but I had a real, real terrible craving to get back to France and um, thought about it all the time, all the time. Uh, and, and, and obviously at some point I had to realize it was a slightly escapist mode of thinking. And in fact, I think I said to my daughter that we were having a wonderful time, you know, sitting out by Dallas Road in Victoria and having a picnic or something. And I said, oh, can you imagine if we were in France? And she, I think, said, it's fine. It's fine here. It's fine. It's great here. Something like that. But anyway, um, and coming to, so that was part of writing this was, okay, I can't go there. And, you know, I had lots of responsibilities and it takes a lot out of you to go that far away and out of the environment too. So. Um, so writing this book was a way to go there, but I think it did actually kind of get me out of that that great, terrible, displaced, displacing desire. Um, and I could set it down. And yeah, and then I do think I actually kind of fused a little better with my own world. So maybe it is about belonging. And certainly the book is about belonging in that most, um, because it starts with the two arriving to yet another town and having constantly been on the move because of Annalene's problems and accidents and inability to maintain or sustain anything um, and definitely they dive into this city and you, we dive into the novel and 
we get deeper and deeper, I think, into this place. And you know what happens in the end. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it is about finding, she does find people. Yeah. Um, that can stay by her, stick by her. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask about the decision around the narrator of the book, and I won't give away too much because if folks read it, we would give away the ending. Um, but I wanted to ask why you went in that direction instead of possibly having it told by Odette or um, one of the other main characters. Um, so that's a good question too. I guess just as a as a craft creative enterprise for me I really did want to write something I'd always been writing in first person and I had read a great writer say that the only book that the only novel that should really be written should be in the first person so I, I understand the idea there but um uh I did want to try I, not maybe not every single thing I'd written was in the first person but a heck of a lot and that is a great way to immediately communicate especially when you're writing for children or young people you know you're immediately a voice in their head and you're immediately like them you're identifying and that first person is pretty potent when you're younger um and so there was that but I just wanted to take the take the adventure of trying a third person um narrator and why someone slightly obscure um yeah I guess it gave me a lot of freedom if you're writing in um the voice of one of the um from the perspective or even a close third person of one of the characters um, in the novel, uh, you um, you are really kind of tied again to what that person is uh, doing and that character. So I guess there was a bit of privacy, but you'd have to read the book to know what I'm getting yeah. at, I guess. <laughs> Um, I, I guess my last question for you is kind of around, I was exploring your, your other writing this morning, which includes poems about men's rear ends, which I enjoyed. Uh, and I was curious how you decide on um, what container to fit your work into, whether you kind of know when you're going into it, like this will be a poem, this will be a children's novel, or whether you kind of start and then, and then decide where it lands. Yeah, that's, good. that's a great question. Um, it's not an issue of complexity. It is more the nature of the relationship I want to have with the material um, and the nature of how much, I think how much metaphor or how much meaning there is between the lines, maybe that space, how wide and how narrow that is. So I guess, you know, I do journalism as well. So of course the space there is pretty darn narrow between the lines, I'd say. Uh, whereas with poetry, of course, it's enormous. And uh, with children's writing, it's almost a double. I, I don't want to say it's a matching distance or value. Uh, I would say it's double. I think writing for children is uh, pretty, I think it's almost a, an act of magic in many ways. If you think that, your audience is not you, you're not a child. So there's already that oddity compared to other writing. Um, and there is a lot of lack of reference on the children's part in terms of historical event or any kind of life experience. Um, so you're working in a world where uh, lots of, some of the words you're using, they've never even met before. Uh, cliches they've never heard before so actually you have a little room to play there um, you're introducing a lot 
of stuff and I think it's like life there has to be uh, as much going on between the lines as there is actually in the ink on the page so that's exciting to me I, I think writing is kind of uh, for children can often be like haiku uh, there's a form of writing called uh, for, there's a sorry there's a genre I don't know if you call it a genre but there's a um, it's not a genre um, you, you can write for reluctant readers and, and, I, and I've written a few books for reluctant readers and what that means is you're writing uh, text uh, that is very okay first of all the content is aimed at a 14 year old the storyline the character everything that they're dealing with but the text is limited in terms of um, uh, you can't have multi multi-syllabic words you, you can't you can do very very little reaching into the past it's got to pretty be pretty concrete in the present you're going to be moving along pretty linearly and yet you still have to tell a complex story that a 14 year old is going to want to read so that i find has this kind of challenge of say a haiku so i guess um whereas sometimes i write in creative nonfiction, um and lately i've been doing a fair bit of that and it really is like a journal entry with some leaps leaps into metaphor leaps into that realm and I think that's I think that's good. I think that's helpful for me uh, because you don't always have to. Not everything has to be connected to another a deeper meaning or anything. And then the meaning of what's in the ink actually starts to really reveal itself. If if that's any help, but honestly, probably I have no idea what I'm going to write. And usually, if I try to write a poem, it fails. So I try to steer away from them. <laughs> Thanks so much to Sarah for being on the podcast. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, don't forget to visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. If you want to stay in the loop about all things BC and Yukon Book Prizes, follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Joseph Danderend, whose book, Shalom, The Doctor, is a finalist for the Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.